Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Actually, in Hebrew, it says the same lip. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen or tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to this passage, what I'd like for us to begin to do and to think about and to process is the fact that this passage here is a passage which has often been used to promote an anti-city type of thinking. That somehow God is anti the city. And you'll see that as we move forward that there's a reality that's going on within this passage that we're going to see God is going to call Abram out from the city to go out into the wilderness. But what we need to see more importantly in this passage is not this call away from quote-unquote the city or that somehow the city itself is bad. In fact, what we need to see from this passage is, is the city has both amazing things to offer but it also has great needs, which it hopes to make for itself, but can't. What we're going to see in this passage is that actually that there is a great sense of mercy that is displayed in this passage, even though there's also a great reality of judgment. We need to see all of that in its full orbness because that's what God is doing in our world today as well. This is not just the God of the Old Testament that we can get rid of. This is rather the God who is over all places in all times and over all peoples. And so as we begin to look at this, as we looked last week at the Lord of the nations, that God is over all the nations, that he is also over the city. Now the reason why I say this is because there's kind of two frameworks of thought within even Christian culture. There's those who seem to have this infatuation with the city, And it almost comes across as anti-rural, anti-suburb, anti-anything that's not the city. But there's also within Christendom, within the evangelical world, this notion that somehow the city is this place of darkness, this place of incredible wickedness that somehow is more prolific there than in the suburbs or in small-town America or in the farm lands of America. And what I want you to understand as we look at this passage, that 
the hearts of men, whether they live in the suburbs or they live in the downtown, whether they live in the heartland or they live in the coast, is capable of all types of atrocities if God is not the Lord of the city. If that's not who He is, then people are doomed. And that's really kind of the purpose of this passage, is to draw us to that place. I've kind of given you in some ways the punchline from the very beginning so that we can then begin to unpack this passage. The first thing I want us to, to see then in this passage is the longing. What I want you to see as we read through this is now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, remember in Genesis, we're always moving east of Eden. Every time people move, it's always this eastward move from Eden, perfection. Where God had prepared a place, people are sent out to the east, and they're moving eastward. Genesis always has this easterly movement, and people always seem to be getting messed up as they move east. It says they migrated from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So they're coming back. They're trying to find this place. And some people would suggest, and I think this makes some legitimate sense, that you know the tar that they got to build the ark was from this same area. And so it's possible that these people had in their mindset, we're going to go back to this general area so we can once again build something that will save us, that, that somehow the idea of salvation and safety are connected with this place. And so they gather back here together. Now, I think it's too much to believe that the reason why they build this city and they build this great tower going up is they're somehow trying to build what some people have, have postulated. They're trying to build this great mountain into the sky so that they can escape the flood should it ever come. I think that's a bit, that's a bit much. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. And when we understand how towers were built in the ancient Mesopotamian world, we understand that they often built these because they believed these ziggurats as they were, you would walk up these steps and literally walk into heaven. They were a gateway. And in fact, Babylon means gate of the gods or gate of God. That's what it, it means. Now, obviously, our scriptures are going to say, well, it actually means something else. But we understand that this mentality surrounding Babylon is it's a gateway to God. It's how we can get to God. So you need to keep that in mind, that there is that idea that's going on here. And there's this sense of longing, if you will, for stability. You see that in the passage, don't you? Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. That they, and they had brick for stone and, and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, they want to have some level of stability and there's nothing wrong with the fact that human beings want stability, safety, security. We all want that. I mean, isn't it ironic that often the reason why people move to the suburbs is for those very things? Stability, safety, security. This kind of sounds very familiar. And that's why I said you can't make it about merely geography. It's more about a mentality, a way of processing the world. And here we see in this passage this longing that these folks have, which is very similar to our longings for stability, security, rest, safety. We also see something else that's going on here. They have this desire to make a name for themselves. Another word we might use for that is significance. They want to matter. Let's 
make a name for ourselves so that we'll matter. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to think that I matter to somebody. Don't you? Isn't that one of the things we fundamentally desire pretty much above almost everything else is that if I die today, somebody would care. That I would, it would matter that I had been on this planet. That somehow there would be some measure of significance of who I am. Now I want you to start to see that because in this passage what we see is this group of people moving back and trying to establish a place where they would matter, where they would stick together, they would have community, they would be able to see this increase of the arts and all kinds. I mean, think about what the city provides for us. I don't know how many of you venture into the city, but there are some awesome art museums in the city of Tucson. They're just cool. There's a lot of things that because when people gather together that you see. Look, our city is based on two main things going on in our culture here besides retirement. That is the university and it's Raytheon. And I want you to think about what's going on as men gather together to, and women gather together to work at Raytheon. All kinds of technology and all sorts of things are being able to be created because they gather together, they work together. There's a sense of order and organization within that particular company. And then you have all the various companies and organizations that gather around that organization. Restaurants and electricity and gas. And, and just think about all the things that are going on because a city is formed. There's jobs are created. I mean, all sorts of things happen, which aren't necessarily a bad thing. They're a good thing. But there's also the downside of that. As people tend to congregate together, their ability to conjure up perversity and wickedness is multiplied as they gather together. And what I want you to begin to see is longing and craving might be another word we could use here. If it's not met with something that truly satisfies, is going to see itself worked out in violence, in oppression, in perversity, in hurtfulness. And in fact, for all the beauty and the wonderful things that we can see going on, we also see all those things too. That people will seek to fill their cravings, to fill their longings with all kinds of things. We conjure up all kinds of stuff with our imaginations, which ultimately lead to us harming ourselves, harming one another, and not doing what we were made to do. And we see all that in this passage as we begin to look at it. We see this longing being met with this determination to somehow build for themselves a place. And I want you to think about it. Build for themselves. Let us build for ourselves a place that is stable. A place that provides security. A place that makes us matter and gives us significance so that we won't be scattered or dispersed. That's profound because part of what God had commissioned people to do was to spread out over the entire earth so that the earth 
would be filled with His glory. What we might say at the end of the day here is that what we see these people saying is, we somehow want to get glory. We were made for glory. They sense it. What they become confused of is how they get glory. They're somehow trying to get glory for themselves. And in the end, they are going to destroy themselves. Well, the next thing I want us to to consider here as we look at the longing is the laboring. You can't really read it in our English text, but if if you were looking at Hebrew, what you'd see is that there's this whole working going on. It actually tells us that they are gathering all the necessary things to make brick, and it's laborious. To make brick, you've got to get straw, and you've got to get all these type of aggregate. You've got to mix it together. It's a very laborious. It's not like going down to Lowe's and getting some quickcrete. This is, it's, it's a whole different, you've got to do all the stuff that makes quickcrete. And so that's what they're doing. This is very laborious. They are, they are working hard. And then they've got to create these furnaces to fire these bricks together to make them hold together because they won't just do it. If you just submit, they've got to somehow fire. There's a lot of effort going into trying to create stability and safety and security and to gather significance. They're laboring hard to not get dispersed and to be able to have security and safety. So much so that they basically say, not only let us build a city that will provide that, but let's create this tower that will not only give us safety, security, and stability and significance, but that tower will actually get us into heaven itself. See, these folks are not just satisfied with saying, okay, we're just going to kind of live out our existence, sunrise, sunset. There's a sense of they're trying to advance themselves. Now, here's the thing I want you to think about in Mesopotamia at the time. This type of idea was going on. In Mesopotamia, their worldview was this. The world and people are getting better. Does that sound familiar? Mesopotamia, Babylonian thought processes were the world and people are getting better. And so their natural process as they gathered on the plains of this field was to say, we have a mindset which says, we're getting better, we just got to work harder, be more ingenious in our efforts, and at the end of the day, we're going to come out on top. Another thing that they believed was, is that basically through, through warfare and through domination, ultimately the world could be conquered. I want you to think about that as well. Because the founder of the city of Babylon is Nimrod. And Nimrod, back in chapter 10, is a man whose name means to rebel. And it tells us that he was a pursuer and abuser of the creation. Now, it's not to say there's anything wrong with hunting, so I've heard people make all kinds of strange that the man was a hunter and that was bad. That's not what it is. It's more the understanding that when we get to Esau, who's also a man of the earth, he's a hunter. Esau is not viewed unfavorably. We see Nimrod, this mighty hunter before the Lord. The idea there of being a mighty hunter is... He, he slays everything in his path to dominate it. 
that basically what happens is survival of the fittest is the way the day is won. And Nimrod is top dog. And he begins to create these cities and goes on to establish these other cities. It's possible he established them. It may be that what he is is a conqueror, and he doesn't establish them in any other places. He rather conquers them. He establishes this place uh, out of which he begins to go out and try to conquer other nations around him. The idea here, though, is that this is the foundation of how this whole place is stirred. It's this rebelness. It's this conqueringness. It's this overwhelmingness. It's not an attitude of service. It's not an attitude of caring. It's not an attitude of promoting the common good. Come let us gather together actually as a means of setting people up to be dominated, to be oppressed. And we see later on in Israel's history that this brick-making will not be something that they enjoy doing. In fact, it will be what they're doing under the oppression of Egypt. And so we see how this whole thing is working itself out in these buildings. And think about why the Egyptians built pyramids. They were gateways into the afterlife, gateways to salvation. Now the next thing I want us to look then in this passage is the looking. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city, or to look at the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's obviously the one side of this that seems kind of humorous, right? I mean, you, 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 get, you get the joke, don't you, in verse 5? These people are building this massive city. They're building this great tower into the heaven, and God comes down. He has to go down to see this magnificence, quote-unquote, that they're building. There's a certain level of humor here. Some people think the Bible isn't funny. This is funny. This is biblical humor. See, God who is on high, and he has to stoop low to see what these people are up to. There's humor there, but I also want you to see behind that humor is something profound. See, in the laughing of it, we might miss this profound thing when we look at God looking. God actually cares what they're up to. And I want you to think about that for a minute. This passage tells us that these people are in rebellion against God, and rather than just going and move on with the next thing, rather than having the, it's an ant, step on it with your heel and keep on walking, rather than going and getting bug spray, God stoops low to see what they're up to. He looks into their world. He comes down into their world because he's concerned about what they're doing. Now that has to start to speak something profound into our lives. Because remember, we've already said, wanting to have stability, wanting to have some measure of security, wanting to be significant in some ways matters. And see, here we start to see the story turn. It's not merely about God coming down to judge them. It's about what He's doing to show mercy. He's looking at their situation and says, this will never do. If we let them stay congregated together, there's no end to the evil they will perpetuate. He's not saying there's nothing that will be impossible to them as if somehow we could technologically advance ourselves far enough to fight God. Don't you see that's sort of what they're up to though? 
We're going to develop and build things enough to where we don't have to need God anymore. Because see, even as people who may be ordinary church-going folk, oftentimes we're doing things in our lives to build up edifices to control our circumstances because we really don't trust God, really. We're afraid of Him. We're not sure He's going to keep His promises. But there's also a sense, and for people who've never known God, never have anything to do with God, it's like, why should I ever trust God? What good has He ever done for me? And what I want you to see in this passage is it's confronting both of those things. It's telling us God comes down to look at these people's situation. And remember, this city is being established by Ham's descendants. For those of you that weren't here last week, remember, Ham's descendants are those who ultimately produced the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all those ites that Israel ultimately has to push out of the land of Canaan because their evil and their sin is so great as they congregate together. What we have here is this group of people gathered together that there will be nothing that they will not be able to do that promotes oppression and aggression and perversion. And God says, that will not do. Now that gives us some hints into why He does what He does. He doesn't just come down and wipe out the city and knock down the tower. In fact, He doesn't do any of that. He comes down and brings confusion to their ability to communicate with one another. And we all know how this works. For those of you that work in a corporate office, you know when, when the corporate boss sends out some kind of memo and it gets out to everybody and half the workforce goes, what? This creates instability in the workplace. Confusion, frustration, irritation. We all see this. And so what happens here is that God actually comes down and brings about the fourth point. We see the looking. Now we see the loving. This confusion, if you will, this chaos is God actually loving people because what He's doing is several things. One is, He's protecting the seed of the woman. We know from Genesis 3.15 that God has made a promise to send a seed of the woman. Part of what He's doing here is if people can create enough wickedness, they'll just start wiping people out. Haven't we, didn't we see that in the last century? The perpetuation of people's ability to advance in technology and do all these things, to, to use evil to such extents, it's just astonishing what human beings are capable of doing to other human beings. The evil they're capable of perpetuating on one another is astounding. And so what we see here is that God is protecting this promise to send forth a seed of the woman, which we just said something about in Galatians. Born of a woman, born under the law, to rescue those who were under the law. They might be adopted as sons. What we see here is that God actually begins to create confusion so that people would understand their needs, their hurts, their wants cannot be found in anything they can provide for themselves. They can't work hard enough to gain stability. They can't do enough to really be secure. That all their efforts to gain significance 
still leaves them feeling empty. And we see that in our world, men and women. There are people who come to this city. They go to the University of Arizona, which is one of the top 50 state schools in the country. Some of, some of those colleges at that university are some of the most prestigious in the world. And people come to get a name for themselves, to get a, grad, a certificate which says, or a diploma which says, I graduated from the U of A in this particular area of study. And that makes me a somebody. And that means I ought to matter. And that means I ought to be able to pursue financial riches and all these things that will give me success. And they get all those things. And they still feel empty inside. See, it's not just about being exposed that if you don't get them, you realize, wow, I... I didn't get what I wanted, and therefore security and safety and significance must be found someplace else. There are people who actually achieve all those things, humanly speaking, and still find, I still don't feel like I've arrived. There's got to be more. Right? Isn't it Howard Hughes' old statement? How much money do you need? Just a little more. There's, just, there's always one more thing to be created, one more thing to do. And so what I want you to look at is that God is actually showing love that He begins to expose these people. He begins to show the fact that they are empty in their pursuits. That this will not achieve for them what they had hoped. They're going to find that it's lacking. So what does He do? They mix up the mortar. He mixes up their language. They sought to keep themselves from being dispersed he confuses the language so that they are dispersed. They are scattered. But one of the reasons why I can show you linguistically, if you will, in this language that God is actually doing this as an act of mercy is because chapter 10 precedes chapter 11. And chapter 10 tells you how all the people were dispersed. And in fact, if chapter 11, verse 1 through 9 wasn't there, you would think there was just this natural progression and migration of all these different people out. They were just dispersed all over the place and it was all this beautiful wonderfulness of people spreading out. And God wants you to see that this happened but then He comes back in and says and this is why. This is how. I had to show love and mercy by stepping in and judging so that love might be seen. And see, men and women, that's something that's very hard for people in our culture to get a hold of. That you'd actually be disciplined. That you'd actually be told no. That you'd actually say, not this far. Here and no further. You, you don't love me. You're not going to let me express myself. You're not going to let me care about the things that I really... You're not going to let me... See, what I want you to understand is every loving parent on this planet knows that you have to set boundaries for your children or they will kill themselves. And if you have a host of children like the Henrys do, if there aren't some level of boundaries, the perpetuation of, of uh, profound foolishness that can be enveloped in them, even when they're not trying, happens. It happens even at the Hermerding house with just three. 
The point I'm trying to get across to us is what we see in this passage is God bringing limits to people and enforcing certain things that must happen so that people will not ultimately be destroyed. Now, how do I see that? How do I know that? Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. This is where I want us to conclude. If you get back to that, the back part of your Bibles, see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After John comes the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Here are the disciples. They're all huddling together. They're trying to create stability. They're trying to hold together. Jesus says, has gone from them and they're all huddled down and they're waiting for something to happen. In some ways they're afraid. In some ways they're discouraged. But then it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house they were sitting in and and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. All those scattered people all over the place. And at the sound of the multitude, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. There's a reversal of this confusion. All of a sudden we see understanding, commonality, togetherness, significance. You matter. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking a bunch of rednecks? That's what it means when it says Galileans. Aren't they a bunch of hicks? How do we hear them in our own language? They're a bunch of bumblers. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Now going back to Babylon... For just a moment, I want you to see this. The capacity of human beings to confuse themselves and to delude themselves is profound in both these passages. Because we see at the end of Genesis 11, 1 through 9, that what Babel meant was language confused. But what Babylon by the Mesopotamians came to be known as was gateway to God. Now, do you understand what's being said here? And in this passage, what happens? Some said, we hear about the mighty works of God. But others said, they're just drunk. This morning, we may have those here who say, we've heard this morning about the mighty works of God. What would that mighty work be? That Jesus Christ came into this world 
of insecurity and instability and unrest and confusion and died a death that every human being deserves to die. He died that death, was tortured, beat, spit upon, abused. All the sins, as we read in Isaiah, from Isaiah 53, were poured out on Him. So that confusion could be removed and that people could hear again about all the good things that God has done. That God is a good God who loves His people, loves them so much that He would enter into their mess as a human being to love them and care for them and cherish them and endure the suffering for them. I beseech you this morning, if you entered this place knowing the Lord Jesus, walk out encouraged that your God is at work loving and caring and drawing things together no matter how crazy life looks, no matter how wild the ride seems. This is a God who steeps and steps down low to care for His people and to see what's going on, to guide them and to orchestrate history in such a way that they would be cared for, even when it doesn't always look like it. And if you entered this place today not knowing Jesus, not believing, don't leave here a skeptic saying, oh, when God stoops low to care for me, I say, oh, it's a gateway for me to get to God. Rather than seeing that, no, it's a God who has to stoop low to get you. you got nothing to give. He's got to come give you. And that you would not be confused and say, oh, it's just new wine. They're just a bunch of drunk people. They're a bunch of fools. Pray that God would open your eyes to see the truth. That in Christ, the Bible tells us that as we declare that name of His above every name, Revelation tells us that He promises to give us a name. A name. He promises to say, you matter. You're significant. You're important. As we show the proper glory to God and spread His fame, Jesus says that the glory you've given to me, God, give to them. We crave a name. We crave glory. And what we see in the person of Jesus is all of that come together. And as we are willing to trust and submit our hearts to Him and say, Jesus, You're everything I'm looking for in life. Nothing else can give it to me. All the things that we thought we were craving and we're trying to get for ourselves, we find in Him and that He provides for us. And I pray that God would make that so in our midst that we would believe that to the core of our beings. Amen.